she had got the cancer. You have made my life so wonderful. Take that with you too, okay? I know that you love me. Your mother can't be with you anymore. I can't believe it. It's been a decade since you've been gone. Mama, I miss you. I miss sitting with you in the front yard. Still figuring out how to keep living without you. Welcome to Hello, My Mom is Dead. I'm Molly McGlynn, a writer and director in Los Angeles, and my mom is dead. In this podcast, I talk to guests about being in this shitty little club, which unfortunately has some of the best people in it. We talk about everything from how losing our moms impacted us, what our moms did right and wrong, and how to mother yourself and how grief continues to evolve, and maybe a dead mom joke or two. My guest today is the one and only director and cinematographer, Rachel Morrison. Rachel is a prolific American cinematographer and director. In 2018, for her work on Mudbound, she became the first woman ever to be nominated for the Academy Award for Best Cinematography, as well as the first to be nominated by the American Society of Cinematographers for Best Feature Film. That same year, she was the first woman to have lensed a Marvel superhero movie, the box office hit Black Panther. She also photographed eight Sundance premieres in seven years. Among these are Mudbound, Dope, and Fruitvale Station, winner of both the Audience Award and Grand Jury Prize for Best Picture. Directing highlights include Hightown, American Crime Story, The Morning Show, and most recently, The Mandalorian. No big fucking deal. Her forthcoming feature debut is Flint Strong, a narrative about the American dream versus the American reality centered around Clarissa Shields, boxing phenom from Flint, Michigan. Outside of these enormous professional accolades, Rachel is also the mother of two and an avid amateur surfer. I am such a fan and admirer of Rachel's work, and I cannot wait to share our conversation. So let's get into the mom stuff. So welcome, Rachel. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Uh, Where are you right now? Uh, I'm actually in Mexico City. I'm I'm shooting a commercial, but I have today off, so this worked out well. Very uh, lucky day for me. Um, So I have followed and admired your work for years and have looked up to you as a fearless, talented, trailblazing woman in film. But we are not here to talk shop today. We are here because our moms are dead. So womp womp. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So I'm starting off these episodes uh, by reading the guest mom's obituary. And we were emailing a little bit before this and uh, you had no luck finding it online, but I ended up finding a Boston Globe newspaper copy of your mom, Amy's obituary online. Oh my goodness. How did you, (laughs) that's impressive. Yeah, it's really CIA level free trial newspapers.com. Oh, okay. I was, I was going to say they need to give you your, de- your detective badge. Yeah. Um, so I'll start off by reading uh, your mom, Amy's obituary, if that's okay. Please. Okay. Amy L. Morrison, 56, was psychiatric social warrior. Amy Morrison, a psychiatric social worker, died Sunday in her home in Cambridge. She was 56. Mrs. Morrison was born in Brooklyn, New York, and graduated from Brooklyn College. She earned a master's degree in social work at Columbia University before moving to Cambridge in 1963. 
Mrs. Morrison battled breast cancer for 11 years. She faced her disease directly and published her observations about practicing psychotherapy while living with a life-threatening illness. She was a founding member of the Massachusetts Breast Cancer Coalition and was active in organizing and planning the group's educational, fundraising, and legislative activities. She was instrumental in the founding of the Atrium School in Watertown and served for many years on its board of directors. She leaves her husband, Andrew, daughter, Rachel Morrison of Cambridge, her mother, Edda Seiden of Brookline, and a sister, Ricky Gardner of New Rochelle, New York. A funeral service and burial will be held at 10 a.m. tomorrow in Mount Auburn Cemetery in Cambridge. Wow. How does that feel, hearing that back? Um, it brings up a lot of things. I mean, I, I'm in a unique uh, other club, which is my, my father is also dead. So, and I have no brothers and sisters. And so I'm in the, I don't know if you can still be considered an orphan as an adult, but I'm, I'm in the, um, the, the sad orphan club. And so I, I don't have a lot of answers to a lot of things. My, my mother's sister is actually still alive. She's 90, which is amazing. But, you know, because she didn't live near us, even that, like, I, I can't, we'll, we'll get to this, I'm sure. But like, as I wonder about my own kids and what, you know, how they re- remind may remind somebody of, of me as a, as a child, like she, she's, she wasn't close enough to us to be able to answer those questions. But like, I forgot, I forgot a number of things. I forgot that my mom had, had gone to Columbia university and I, I mean, I guess the rest of it was, I mean, I knew and and was very proud of the fact that she'd helped start this school, which is still, uh, exists and is now we started with a class of four and now it's like a full fledged goes through middle school, still exists in Cambridge. Um, but yeah, I don't know. It's it's wild to hear again, I guess. When I found this this morning, I, I mean, she sounds so impressive as a woman. And um, my mom died when I was 21, but she also, she was a therapist, also died of metastatic breast cancer. So it's like, okay, we have that similarity. Um, how old were you when she died? I was 15. I was a sophomore in high school. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it sucked. Do you remember who wrote the obituary? Was it your dad or? I don't remember. You know, the other thing that I had mentioned when we first talked about this is I have a pretty foggy memory about a lot of things, like listening to your first guest and how clearly each of you re- recalled, like even the things you were wearing when your mothers died, like call it self-preservation. but. My, my memory is much more blurry, my, my whole sort of childhood. I mean, my mom, to be fair, was first diagnosed when I was four and was, you know, wrestling with breast cancer in, in various states and, and went into remission, you know, on two different occasions. So I guess she was diagnosed when I was four and then remission and then seven or eight and then remission and then back when I was 13. And so I think there's just a, a there's there's some blurring of of details to I don't know, to get to, to get to where I am now, I guess. Um, but that said, I also, she was healthy a lot in the in-between, you know, and she was a warrior. Like, I, I think maybe what your takeaway from the bit, hearing that back was a reminder, like she really, she, she was impressive and doing all the things and active protesting the war and, and war in general and, and involved on this, the board for breast cancer, um, awareness. And I just remember wearing a pin that used to say one in nine and then the nine had been crossed out and it said one in eight and, you know, active politically active with work, loved her work. 
and also very um, honest about what she was wrestling with. Like, I think she really led with honesty. Like when people asked her how she was doing, she'd be like, you know, fine, but I'm dying of cancer. Other than that, it's great. And and that's, she lived her, her life really sort of honestly. In the obit, it mentioned her publishing observations um, about practicing psychotherapy while living with cancer. Have you read any of those? Yeah, it's actually, it's the one thing that comes up when you Google her name, you know, by virtue of the fact she died before most things were public and internet was prevalent. But um, it's really, it, you know, I think it also represents how candid she was and and how she led her, her life with chutzpah, I guess the Yiddish word, but also <laughs> transparency. And I, I think it is interesting it took me years to go to therapy. I think because I had therapist parents who always offer it, I was very, oh, I don't need therapy. I'm good. And then finally now as an adult, it's like even having a therapist recently who decided to retire early after the pandemic, it's like, that's such a close and profound relationship and thinking about what it would be like to have to, you know, end your practice with your patients, not because you're retiring, but because you're dying. And, and I mean, the weight of that is quite profound but also that she continued to practice as long as she did, you know, and at the same time, I always felt loved and like a priority, you know, it's, it's weird. It's like, now I go back, especially having kids of my own, you know, if I knew I had three years to live, like, would I stop working and give all that time to my child or would I continue as long as I could? I mean, that was the path that she took, but everything I sort of look at it in a new light now that I'm a mom as well. What do you think you would do? Would you continue to work? Oh, um, I would probably be very selective. I mean, I try to be selective about the work that I do anyway, but like I do commercials so that I can be selective with the narrative work I do. If I knew I was dying, I would not be doing commercials. I would really, I would maybe make one last movie if there was something that I felt like I had to put out into the world, or I would, I would try to say something that meant a lot to me, but I certainly wouldn't take the money jobs. I would spend that time surfing and boxing and hanging out with my family. And traveling, definitely traveling. Yeah, to some great surf destinations. Exactly. On the topic of work, do you think there's any connection to losing your mom and both parents, really, and your love and interest in storytelling? And then further to that, do you think there's a connection to the type of stories you're drawn to? Absolutely, is the answer. You know, once I sort of went back and psychoanalyzed my own trajectory, I would say that my early interest in photography most likely stemmed from an attempt to freeze time. I mean, I was trying to capture the healthy moments, the happy moments. Um, I mean, there, there are family photos with me at the helm dating back to when I was probably four or five, like pointing up at, at, at my parents or whatever. So I think I got into photography because it felt like I could preserve something and then I developed a real love for it. So that certainly, and, and cinematography and storytelling and, and all of these things. I also was that kid, I mean, losing a, a parent in high school. Like I was in the dark room listening to all kinds of depressing music and wrestling with all of the emotion. I think photography was really wonderful for that. Me, dark music, and you know, maybe one other person in the room. But yeah, and then in terms of the stories that I tell, I mean, look, I always say that that I would trade anything to have my mother back and my father back, but like I am who I am because of what I've been through. Um, and I think for better or for worse, that's informed even 
the decisions around what work I do. Like I, I have this also for better, for worse, this incredibly high threshold for pain myself. Like if somebody's not dead or dying, I don't even, I, I barely can register something as pain. And so when I look at stories, I look at things that I emotional in some way, additive in some way. I mean, I feel like I approach my whole life with this real awareness of mortality and like, how do I want to live my life? What do I want to put out into the universe? And so, yeah, I think it affects the stories that I tell as well. And the other thing, just full transparency is my dad was the unhealthy one. My mom just got sick or sooner or more terminally. So I, I think I was just, I was wrestling with a lot of issues around health and mortality since a stupidly early age. Have you read Motherless Daughters? I have probably three copies of, I mean, over the years, it's been something that people, and I, for whatever reason, have never brought myself to read it. I think I'm finally at this place. It's taken uh, the bulk of many decades to get here, but where I'm ready to do a little bit more of the emotional heavy lifting. I think my survival mechanism probably due to the age was like, just push forward, just push on, just deny, just get busy, distract myself in, in every way, shape or form. And there's still, I'm still very, I don't sit well. I, I like to be busy. I'm always doing something. I'm always, if I'm not with my kids or working. I'm boxing, I'm surfing, I'm going, I'm, I don't know, hanging out with people. I have a hard time probably just sitting with some of my feelings and doing some of the heavier lifting. But I, I do feel like I'm at such a good place with so many other things that maybe it's time, which is a very long-winded answer. I haven't read the book. I don't look at old photo albums. I don't listen to the tapes. Like I, I It's all there, and I have yet to really come through it. Wow. I, I only ask that because I haven't read it in 15 years. I read it while my mom was dying, but her argument is around the fact that depending on the age you're at in your life and development, the mother loss affects you so differently. Um, and I'm thinking about you 15 in the dark room and 15 is such a tender age. What was it like to, especially as an only child too, yeah, to go through your adolescence without your mom? You know, now looking back, I can kind of admit to it being rough. It was rough, but I think at the time, my coping mechanism was, again, was just to sort of push through and deny how rough it really was. Um, it's interesting, like I'm still close with a lot of my close friends dating to like early childhood, but certainly through high school. And I think probably a lot of that was because they became my family, right? My family is what we call it. But um, And now that we're all parents ourselves, or a lot of us are, like I have friends in recognizing like their parents knew that I, my, my dad started dating not long after my mom died and wasn't always present at home. So I was by myself a lot. And it's like, they, they'll say things now that are like, I don't know how my parents didn't do more for you or take you in or, or check up on you or, you know, and I, I think I'm having that experience a little bit too, where I'm just like, I would never lose sight of my close or my kids' friends or my friends' kids if I knew that they'd gone through something like this, but it was a different time and keeping up through, I don't know. So like it, you have to drive to somebody's house. Like it wasn't the same ease of operations as things are now, but yeah, I mean, it was in retrospect, like it was a fucking mess. I would come home 
from school. My dad was not home most days or nights. I would microwave a meal for myself. Microwave meals that got me through high school and watch Jeopardy, which was, it's funny. I, I was, but my name was the answer to a question or my name was in a question on Jeopardy a few years ago. And it was like the biggest kind of full circle pat on the back for how far I'd come. But like, that was my routine every day was, was microwave meal. I would microwave mostly macaroni and cheese, I'd pour breadcrumbs on top as if it was like a more gourmet version of macaroni and cheese. <laughs> and then, yeah, watch TV and eventually do my homework. And then of course, partied and drugs and all the other things that probably would have happened anyway, but like certainly escalated by the fact that I had nobody watching over me, you know, I got into raves. I got into, I missed the time. Right. So, yeah, you know, in a weird way, I, I think, I mean, I wouldn't do anything differently now because I, it all turned out okay. You know, but, um, I think that doing a lot of the partying in high school and then early college, it's like, you almost get it out of your system so that then you can focus on the real world when, when you really need to. So I don't, I don't even regret that. Like the, the trouble I got into, you know, my teen years, I think that probably was all with, with good reason at the time. I wish I got it out of my system. I've 37 now I've been sober for about 15 months and change now. So yeah, there is some stuff for me to work through, but the party did not stop for me for, for a while. You seem like, probably to your friends, families, that you are so competent. You seem that you're projecting that. And I think something else I remember reading from motherless daughters is the tendency to become an overachiever. It's, Mm. you know, the reaction is to overachieve or, you know, underachieve, really fall into addiction or whatever. I think it's fascinating because it is, it's true. If you look at um, so many leaders over, over time, celebrities, like athletes, and, and there, there really is this like statistically high number of either trauma or loss. Right. And it's like, yeah, I don't know what it is that, that then the reaction is to go high or go low. And I think for a lot of people, you go low for a little bit and then you come out of it and, and go high. But yeah, I think the overachieving was definitely my coping mechanism once I got past the drugs and partying. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if it's similar for you, but for me, it it kind of never feels enough. You know, there's such a, a spiritual or existential void. You kind of think with the next achievement or the next thing that you do that'll somehow feel better. I'm reading this Gabor Mate book right now called The Myth of Normal about trauma illness and healing in our toxic culture. You know, he's talking about this personality type that is has a high threshold for pain that you are saying and you push, 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 but because you actually sometimes are not aware of how you're feeling mm-hmm. because that was your coping strategy at that time was mm-hmm. to disconnect with how you were feeling. And I think sometimes, you know, I'm been grateful in my career up until this point, And there's things that I've done that I'm proud of. But part of me wonders, my pain tolerance and the endurance that I have, it's a little bit masochistic sometimes. Yeah, I feel I mean, I feel the same way. I think that's why like, just recently, I'm like, I, I need to, I think I need to unpack some of this shit so that I can get to a more reasonable, reasonable place with pain and martyr, you know, it's, it's about like, you start to martyr yourself. And I mean, and kind of, 
it's it's funny. It's like I I I mean, this is very, very psychological and deep, but I think there's also this thing where it's like, it's not just if somebody else isn't dead or dying. Like if I'm not dead or dying, I'm fine. So no amount of emotional abuse or physical abuse, like that I can barely register that, you know? Yeah. It's interesting. When we were emailing you, you shared about your mom that she said, no matter what you believe, including if you think I can see you somehow. Please don't make choices or live your life in fear of what I would think. Live your life for you. How has this affected the trajectory of your life choices? I mean, given how little I remember, except for this one very important thing, I think it sort of is everything, right? Like my mom gave me the freedom to be unapologetically myself so that even during the partying phase, like I wasn't Basically what she said in in so many words, and this is, you know, when she was still coherent before sort of the hospice and the morphine of it all, like when she was very coherent, she, she she said, she was like, I don't want you to ever live your life in fear of what I would think. And I think it really, it liberated me in a way. I mean, it's not that she was ever particularly judgmental. She wasn't, my mom was amazing. Like the, the very um, oversimplification when people ask me about, my parents, my childhood, it's like, I had great parents for too short of a time, which is still better than having an asshole for a lifetime. That's such a great way of putting it. Yeah. I feel incredibly fortunate to have had the parents that I had, even though they wrestled with all kinds of health issues and ultimately succumbed to them. But so I think that, that my mom letting me off, not even letting me off the hook, but just giving me the freedom to live my life however I saw fit. And knowing that she would always be proud of me, she would always love me, all of these things, I think it really, it kept me with two feet on the ground, ultimately. And it, it kept me believing in myself and all of, all of the things, right? What a gift. Do you think or know that your mom wanted to be a mom? Yes. My mom wanted nothing more than to be a mom. I knew I knew that because she told me, her friends told me, her sister told me, my cousin, like, she had me at 41, which in dating myself, but like back in the day was, was very old to be having kids. And even that's kind of a crazy story. They had been told, so she didn't meet my dad until she was 38, never married before that, always wanted kids, but you know, wasn't a time where you would necessarily just do it on your own. And they tried and were told that they weren't ever going to get pregnant. And they went through the whole adoption process. And the day before they were supposed to leave to go pick up the baby that they ostensibly already adopted. Um, my mom found out she was pregnant with me, which is crazy, Whoa. pretty crazy. And there's a lot more to that crazy story too, which is that this girl ended up in Boston. And at one point when I was eight or nine, my mom saw the girl who would have been her daughter had she kept us both. I think my, my dad made it her call. I think she was afraid of not being able to do justice to either of us and wanting to make sure that the pregnancy went full term and not wanting to have, I'm sure the therapist was asking if there were going to be issues with, you know, one adopted child, one biological child, so close in age competition, all that stuff. So she, and I think she thought she'd maybe be able to adopt again. That was always the hope. And that would have changed my trajectory. Like to, I mean, I wanted nothing more than to have siblings, but anyway, all that's to say, she really wanted to be a mother felt incredibly fortunate that it all that it, it did work and 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 I knew it I mean I I she never 
I always felt like I was the priority and a huge like sense of purpose and uh, fulfillment for her. You have children now. Did you always want to be a mother? I did. I mean, I, with the career that I have, it wasn't without questions and challenges, but I, I, I sort of instinctively did. And I also knew really specifically that I wouldn't have one without having two. That was my commitment to myself, just because for everything that I went through, you know, I couldn't change my parents' fates, but if I just had a brother or sister to go through it with. And, you know, I talk to people all the time who who don't get along with their brothers or sisters who basically say just because you have a sibling doesn't guarantee that they're going to be family in the way that you're envisioning. But I just, for myself and I hope for my kids, like I wanted that bond for them and that protection and also just having a wider net of family. I mean, I think my parents sat me down when I was probably, must have been when I was like around 13. Maybe it was earlier than that. I can't remember. But, um, and made me pick my guardians because it was very real that, I mean, my dad had a host of other issues. My mom had terminal cancer. And so it was like, there was a real possibility that I was going to need guardians before I was 18. And I picked my friend of all the friends. I picked my friend who had divorced parents that were both remarried. And I think I was just casting the widest net. I was like, I'll take four. Mm. Somebody's got to stay alive. Like that was my mentality at the time. It was just a numbers game. <laughs> a little bit. Yeah. But anyway, yeah, no, I, I definitely wanted to be a parent. And, and I think for me too, it was a chance to create my own family. I mean, I've, I'd been alone for so long that now we have a family again. That's so beautiful. Do you think about your own mortality differently or with more intensity being a mom? Interesting. I don't know if it's, I thought you were just going to say having lost a parent or something like I, I, mortality is my greatest nemesis and always has been. And I think that that is, I mean, that maybe is the thing that leads people who are overachievers to overachieve or like, there's something about like, I try to live life hard. You know, I work hard, I play hard. I, I mean, I started surfing late in life, so I'm, I'm not great at it, but I surf hard, I box hard, I work hard, like all of these things, but it's it's really comes down to vitality, right? Like I, I try to live a very vital life. I try, I try new things. I try to keep challenging myself. I try to keep growing. I try to make decisions on a whim. Like I, I last week, I bought a ticket on Monday to Fiji on a Thursday because two of my good friends were going on the surf trip. And I've been trying to kind of conceive it around my birthday, but the dates weren't lining up. And then I was like, fuck it. What am I doing? Like, I'm not working this week. It's still a birthday trip. Everybody will understand. I mean, it's not like I make a habit of of leaving my family, you know, except for it's a fairly big, significant birthday. And I just went for it. And like, I don't know that many people who really um, throw themselves at life the way that I do, which I think is the best thing to have come out of sort of when I say I'm not, I wouldn't be who I am without what I have been through. It's like, that's my response mechanism has been to like, really try to make the best of every fucking moment. And so I think, yeah, kids probably upped the stakes, but it was already something that I was very acutely aware of. Maybe I guess more what you mean is like, am I aware of my own mortality in relation to them? 
and like, fuck yeah. You know, I, I used to ride a motorcycle. Okay. You're the coolest person I've ever talked to, by the way. <laughs> Stop. Um, but you know, my wife made me give up my bike the second I got pregnant with my son and I got it. You know what I mean? Like I, I was like, yeah, you're right. I gave it to my gaffer. So I still get to see it on, on sets every once in a while <laughs> and I'll take it back when they're 18 maybe, but like your first baby is just being rehomed. Yes, exactly. Um, fostered. Yeah. I mean, I think I, God, I hope that they get more of me than I got, you know, years wise than I got from my parents. I pray that. This is a personal question. You don't have to answer it, but USC has a high risk screening program. So I'm getting um, mammograms and ultrasounds every six months. Do you do something similar? I do. I I got the genetic testing and I don't have the gene, which is amazing, but we don't know if my mom had the gene. So I I think Mm -hmm. it's a little, it would be a little bit of a better conclusion if we knew she did and I didn't, I, I don't fully understand that, but yeah, I try to, uh, I'm not always the best about it, but I try to, to go yearly, if not more than that and do all the high risk stuff. Yeah. I always, uh, get a lump in my throat on those days. And, you know, I'm, I always tell my, I'm so fortunate and lucky to have insurance and access to this program. I'm Canadian. So Previously to moving to Los Angeles, I was part of a similar high-risk screening program, and that's all free, you know? And there was a time when I was thinking about moving here of, like, bigger picture, I have access to this free healthcare system. Yeah. And does moving to the U.S., you know, potentially mean I may miss something, you know? So it became a lot bigger of a question than just moving to L.A. for work. But, yeah, I feel like every time I go... They, I've had a couple of biopsies done, which are not, they're not fun. It's extremely painful, but you know, it's like that the couple days you're waiting, it's just like, fuck. Like, Yeah. It's scary. It's scary as fuck. I mean, I definitely, I had a, a scare, which is fine, but it, it went to, you, you go to a real dark place really fast because yeah. your experience of it is somebody who didn't make it out. Yeah. I have to like talk myself through it when my mom was first diagnosed when I was 13 I think when they found the tumor it was it was already stage four Mm. and she had had breast implants in the 90s and that had blocked I think some of the imaging and you know so there was a variety of circumstances so I do have to remind myself to people who are screening on a yearly basis if they find something you know, uh, hopefully it would be in its early stages. Yeah. And technology and science and all of that has come so far. I mean, I think when my mom was diagnosed, it was like back when God forbid anybody touch a woman's breast, you know, it was like the, right. the first time I think they poked at it. Maybe they took the lump out the second time they took one breast. And then of course it came back in the other one, you know, and it was like, it was just, that wasn't the way they, like people weren't as aggressive. You know, I actually was really grateful that article that Angelina Jolie put out years ago about like, if you, if it doesn't look good, like fucking take your breath off, save your, save your life. You know, I could not agree more. Yeah. Yeah. And and it is something that I think about a little bit. Like I think everything now is in the context of being a mom myself, but I'm like, why wasn't, there are some things that don't add up. Like why wasn't my mom more aggressive? I feel like she knows she knew better you know, knowing what was at stake, knowing that it was me, like 
why didn't they insist on a full mastectomy the first time or a double mastectomy the second time? Like, I just, I don't fully understand why they didn't take every possible precaution in the same way that like when my wife said, you have to give up your motorcycle. I was like, okay, I will. You know, it's like, there are things like that, that that don't fully add up, but it was a different time. So I don't know, I guess doctors who she trusted were advising her differently, maybe. I um, am very terrified of AI, but there was an Instagram post saying, because in Denmark, AI was able to detect breast cancer like earlier than any other existing technology we have. So that was kind of cool. Oh, wow. Yeah. Don't understand it at all, but yeah. I don't either, but you know, it's Instagram. So I read the headline and (laughs) (laughs) no, no, uh, superficially about that, but you, you mentioned that your mom, when she was dying, didn't really leave any roadmaps to your future. And you said that was really unlike her. Um, yeah. Why do you think that was? I, that's, you know, you're the, you're the detective badge, badge and all. (laughs) That's the one thing I can't, like for the life of me, I cannot figure out. And I recently just talked to my cousin who was very close to my mom. And I was like, Val, do you think it's strange that my mom, who she inscribed everything, she wrote pages and pages on birthday cards. Everything was really like poetic and beautiful and meaningful. And I was telling you, like, I have a a tattoo of a, on my fifth birthday, she inscribed a a copy of the, the Velveteen Rabbit. And it said, um, you're beautiful and so very true. I am realer because of you. And the tattoo just, I'm realer because of you. But just, you know, I was five. I couldn't even read and she's inscribing these books. Mm -hmm. And she wrote letters to me at camp, like multiple letters a week. I mean, she was very all about handwriting notes and there's nothing, nothing. Like, you know, this is somebody who knew she was dying for three years before she died or before she got, you know, too incapacitated to do anything. And like no letter for my 18th birthday, no letter for my wedding day, like no letter to my future kids. And it doesn't add up. It is, that is not like my mom. And I, so I said to my cousin, I'm like, is that strange to you at all? And my cousin's like, oh, she, she must've written something. Like, have you looked everywhere? Is it in the basement? Like, did your dad hide it somewhere? Like, I mean, she had the same thought that I had, which at least validated my own curiosity around it but we've looked everywhere I mean I, I I can't imagine that they would have they wouldn't have turned up or that she, I mean it's also I, I feel like she would have told me I don't know but it's the one question that really like haunts me a little bit but I will n- I'll never have an answer to it maybe she thinks she gave you everything you needed to know yeah yeah I mean I guess I hope so you mentioned um a wedding day and I got engaged in December and to an amazing um person and then I am and was very happy but I felt like afterwards I kind of went into a bit of a grief hole. Yeah. <laughs> You're married and I was just curious if that milestone brought up the loss. Yeah, I mean my dad was dead at that point too and and the the happiest moments are the ones that are tinged with that little bit of sadness, you know, because you don't have the most important person or people in your life, you know, up until now having kids, but like to, to celebrate those with you. I never felt particularly sad on like her death day or her birthday. 
but I would always get sad on my birthday because she used to love to celebrate my birthday. Like it was such a big deal to her again, like having always wanted a kid that like my birthday, she would pull out all the stops. So that's what made me think of her. And I think, yeah, I mean, even obviously as my career started to take off, knowing that my parents never got to see the films that I made or, or even got to see that I, that I turned out okay. Or, or my kid, you know, my kids, I mean, I, I, um, I take so much pleasure in my kids. I feel like I hit the kid lottery and there is some part of me. I'm not particularly spiritual. I'm not particularly like, I don't really believe in karma. And at the same time, I feel like there's some part of both my turning out. Okay. And my career turning out. Okay. I mean, that I think I was more in control of maybe, but like my kids are fucking awesome. And like, I feel like I hit hit the kid lottery in a way that like I had really great, kid karma or karma in my later life because I had such shit karma in my childhood, you know, that like, I, it's almost like somebody was looking out for me um, or they were looking at who knows, but yeah, sorry. That was, I went on a tangent, but I, I do think my wedding and all these, like my first film that I was proud of and the birth of my kids, like those are the times that I really miss both my parents. Yeah. I, I feel that it's, um, Every joyful milestone comes with that bittersweetness, really. But at the same time, the the joy and the pain coexisting is the ultimate human experience. And we're able to feel that so acutely. Yeah. But I'm, some days I'm like, oh, I don't want this fucking wisdom. <laughs> you just want your mom or your dad there. Yeah. Yeah. It's true. I, I mean, I, I remember feeling that a lot, a lot, like coming up where I was just like I traded all in a heartbeat just to like have them back do you think your mom had any secrets I'm sure she did I'm sure she did also just because now now again it's like now that I'm finally my mom having me old means that like I'm just starting to hit the ages that she was when I was a kid and will continue but it's like I look at myself and all of the complexities that their perception of me and the world that they know is so driving them to school and to soccer practice and to, and it's and it's so specific to them and then i have this whole other life and world outside of them and i'm sure that was the case for my parents too you know i just i it's that's the kind of thing that if you, if your parents live into your adulthood you then get to become friends too and you get to talk about those things and i never had that relationship because they died so young but like oh i'm sure she had secrets is there a, a movie or a book that you think gets the dead mom thing right? I think I've pretty successfully avoided all of them. I'm I'm definitely good idea. The, yeah. I'm <laughs> I I'm maybe again, I'm maybe I'm ready to peel back those layers, but I I've spent the bulk of my life since they they died avoiding dealing with some of that stuff. So I was making a little like intro audio clip with like lines from famous movies with moms dying and I YouTubed the scene in Bambi when the mom gets shot. And it was like my experience. I had a physical reaction to it. I was like, this is the worst clip I've ever fucking watched. <laughs> like, it was just yeah. awful. So don't watch Bambi is what I'm trying to say. Copy that. No Bambi. Isn't that, it's like every child. I mean, it's like every fairy tale or like Disney movie kind of starts with the parent dying, which I guess goes back to what we were speaking about is like it, it so formative that, it forces you to go through something. Mm -hmm. 
Do you take extra steps to mother or parent yourself? I mean, it sounds like you're someone who's always on the go, always doing, but are you able to give yourself that nurturing? Yeah, I'm getting better at it. I did start going to therapy. It's been amazing. I highly recommend it. And I do things like taking a last minute trip to Fiji because I I really need it. Surfing has been incredibly, um, it's a form of self-care for me and discovering that and just being in the ocean and, and getting out and carving out that time. I mean, even the drive time, cause I live on the East side, but like listening to a podcast or listening to music or calling my friends, I would say I'm actually pretty good about carving out me time, but only recently. Like, I think it's, it's been maybe like so many people since the pandemic where it's like, we all sort of recalibrated our priorities, but yeah, I, I try to, to make a point of it. What would you say to 15-year-old Rachel in the dark room with the headphones? I think I would tell her that it was all going to be all right. And and not just all right, that it was going to be amazing. Like, I, I do feel incredibly fortunate whether I carved this out for myself or whether there's karma or whether my parents are up there doing something. But, like, my life is pretty great. And my 15-year-old self was in such a different space that I think it probably would have been hard to fathom. But yeah, I would I would reassure her that it was all going to work out. And probably some of it was in, in part because of what she was going through right then and there. I love that, that it's not even just going to be okay or good. It's going to be amazing. Yeah. You lost your mom before, um, you know, social media and smartphones and all of that. But if you could imagine that she would text you today, what would she say? Probably that she's proud of me. The friends that are so alive of, of their friends, and again, my friends' parents, I do feel like these career milestones or whatever, like, I just, I, I hear a lot of people saying your parents would have been really proud of you. And I know. Well, I just met you, but I am proud of you. I am so grateful that you exist in the world. Um, And I think you are a role model to so many filmmakers. And um, that is such a gift that you're giving to people every day just by existing that maybe you're not even aware of. But thank you. Yeah, I'm one of them. And and seeing you, you rise and shine the way you are. I mean, it's a testament to your resilience and who you were raised to be. Thank you. I appreciate that. Well, same in the other direction. And, you know, I, I, I think, I think it's great that you're doing this podcast. This is something I wish had existed back in the day, but I do think it's a very specific club and it's a shitty club, but it also can turn out. Okay. And there's so many badass women. Yeah. People. I, I, it, it's not exclusive to to women. There are so many amazing people who have lost one or both parents and I'm like, selfishly, this is a great excuse just for me to get to know those people better because all of us, I think, are racing against the clock a little bit. And that has created interesting lives. Yeah. It's so it's fascinating, isn't it? That like you just you can't help but have this acute awareness of of yeah, time and, and mortality and the passage of time. And, and maybe that makes you, you know, live, live a little fiercer, or live a little more potently or something. 
I feel bad for those people who have not lost a parent and do not book a trip to Fiji last minute. (laughs) I highly recommend it. Well, one thing that I learned, I mean, it makes so much sense, but again, I just started surfing very recently, but it's like, it almost has to be last minute so you can time this well. Like I was able to look at a surf report, like the waves look amazing. I'm getting on a plane. Like you book it two months in advance and you're just at the mercy of of the wind and the water and all, all the elements that you can't control. What an extraordinary life you have. Pretty awesome. I try. Well, thank you. Is there anything right now you'd like to plug or mention? I know um, you have a film that's going to be coming out at some point soon. Yes, we hope. Oh, my God. It's so weird and wild what's going on right now with the state of the film industry and the studios and all that. But yes, I made a film called Flint Strong. It may not be called Flint Strong by the time this comes out or by the time it comes out because people assume it's about the water crisis, which is actually about a boxer in Flint, but it is a story of resilience. And it's, I mean, it's about a woman named Clarissa Shields. She's incredible. Her story is incredible. And I'm really proud of it. Like it, it um, took a lot for me, you know, even, even trying to live a bold life. Like I have uh, never come out from behind the camera, which I love shooting. I love being a cinematographer, but it, it, it put yourself really front and center on something. Took a, took a lot of um, courage that I, it, I had to grow into, I guess. Um, but I, this is, this is my work baby and I'm really proud of it. And I think it has something to say that's additive in the world, which is again, important to me given life is short. I just have a little spidey sense that this film is going to make Make an impact when it comes out. Very I excited hope you're to right see it. from your mouth. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm I'm willing it to be a Toronto premiere and a like late fall release, but I have it's totally out of my control, which is also crazy the way that these things work, that you can bust your ass and do everything you're supposed to do and deliver a film that tests really well and is is ready to go. And then it's like at the mercy of the marketing gods to decide your fate. There's probably a surfing metaphor here (laughs) riding the waves (laughs) yeah well thank you so much Rachel I am honored with what you shared with such candor and vulnerability thanks and I'm very grateful you can check Rachel out online at rachelmorrison.com or on Instagram at rmorrison and I presume you've already seen some of her work but if you haven't check it out because we are just going to keep seeing Rachel. She's uh, just explodes more and more. Now I need to go up, update my website, which I don't think I've updated in like four years. Same. I've been updating my website for a year. It's the worst. It's the worst. Um, well, thank you for having me. And, and yeah. Thanks, Rachel.